Hello, and welcome to the Objective Health Show. I am your host today, Erica, and joining me in the studio is Doug, Elliot, and behind the scenes is Damien. Hello. Hello. So welcome all. Hello. So today we're going to talk about poisoned agriculture and the possibilities of something different. So for our listeners, this may be a new topic, or you may have followed this since the beginning of time, but we're living in a revolutionary time where industrial agriculture has completely, almost completely taken over our food system. So we've become very technologically dependent, at least in the United States, on modern methods of farming. And this, these modern methods, whether it's gen genetic modification or high-intensity chemicals, fertilizers, and pesticides, are leading to toxification at an alarming rate and soil degradation. Also, serious issues with human health. We've covered topics like this before in the past, but I think it's a good opportunity to revisit this idea as the food industry is changing rapidly with the introduction of synthetic biotechnology, fake meat, and basically chemical shitstorm of food that's available yeah. <laughs> to the public these days. And uh, so... We're hoping this will be a lively discussion. It's also, in a sense, kind of depressing because when you look through the material, you realize that while there is a concern with, you know, the changing climate, there is also a concern with a lack of biodiversity and the dying off of key species, things like pollinators, uh, bees and butterflies, and how this monocropping kind of industrialized food system is really going to destroy the planet. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. And it's funny because the, the people who represent that, you know, big agriculture kind of um, – they always try to kind of give it that greenwashing spin, you know, that all the things that they're doing are actually to help the environment and how it's good for the environment. And, you know, <clears throat> I mean, particularly like I think of like genetically modified crops, you know, when genetic modification came out, they were really selling it in a way that, oh, yeah, this is going to feed the world. This is going to be drought resistant crops or flood resistant crops or extra vitamins and minerals and all this kind of stuff and you know it's going to be so good for the environment and really what they've given us is the absolute complete opposite of that like things that require more poisons more toxic garbage it costs more it has less yield um so i just i i find it really funny that it's like you know whatever you hear about things Whenever you hear it's like it's something somebody's selling something as environmentally friendly, it's almost like more often than not, if you dig into it, it's going to be the exact complete opposite. Completely agree with you on that. We have a, an interesting little clip of a show that Chris Hedges did with um, Dr. Bandana Shiva. And for our listeners who may not have heard of her, she is a seed activist. Well, she's actually a physicist, but she's a seed activist in India. And she's written many books about the Green Revolution, kind of this agricultural nightmare that hit India and how it's just spreading and this idea of bio viral piracy. So the eliminating of, you know, seeds and small farmers. And so... I want Damien to play this clip so you can get an idea of what we're trying to cover in this show. This caused by industrial farming. The commodification of food by corporations has altered the ways we produce, process, and distribute food to serve corporate profit rather than people's health and well-being. Industrial agriculture poisons the soil and water and uses its economic monopoly to destroy the ability of small farmers to sustain themselves and their families. The reconfiguration of food production is degrading our ecosystem as well as our health. There are one billion people across the globe who endure hunger and malnutrition and two billion who suffer from diseases including diabetes, heart disease and obesity 
caused by processed foods loaded with chemicals, fat, and sugar. The pesticides used by industrial agriculture have contributed to an epidemic of cancers. Food, in short, has become another commodity. The natural world is treated as a machine. If we are to survive as a species, it will mean radically changing how we produce the food we consume. Joining me in the studio to Yeah, so joining him in the studio is Vandana Shiva, and uh, we'll have some information from her uh, later on in the show. But I think, you know, what our listeners may not know is this idea of this high-intensity uh, industrial model. And, you know, like Doug was saying, this idea of GMO is going to save us all. And when you start to look into the numbers, especially here in the United States, um, it's pretty disturbing. Uh, we were reading a, an article called Toxic Agriculture, Poisonings of Soils, Human Health, and the Environment. And they were talking about how 34,000 different types of pesticides are currently registered for use in the United States. And those were approved by the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency. Um, they also talk about how industrial agriculture, 75% of all land used in the U.S. to grow food or raise animals, relies on these chemicals. And so we see this health epidemic happening across the globe. And I think a lot of times people don't really look into what's causing that. Or, you know, they say, well, it's, it's diet, but then we don't really go into what part of the diet that yeah. means. Well, you know, we did a previous show. Actually, it was Elliot and me. It was the bro show we did a while ago where we were talking about endocrine disruptors. And one of the big things I think that, that that's causing a lot of these problems is the uh, herbicides, pesticides, and things that they are endocrine disruptors. So, you know, Chris Hedges mentioned cancer there, but there is a whole laundry list of problems that can be caused by endocrine disruptors. And that's only, you know, of the 34,000 uh, chemicals that are being sprayed onto crops, I mean, endocrine disruptors are one category of those. So, I mean, there's just the, the huge list of, of problems that can come up from this poisoned agriculture is just, it's, it's stunning. And I mean, it's, you know, it contaminates groundwater, it's on the food, it's, uh, it's in the air, it's everywhere. And it's, you know, it's so prevalent. It's showing up in breast milk uh, for mothers. It's just, it's so concerning in so many ways. And, and even the pollinating insects, I mean, we're seeing uh, just a huge decrease in things like bees. And I think people don't really realize that if you don't have pollinating insects, you don't have food, period. And, and just in the context of health, um, you mentioned about these chemicals being found in breast milk, but they're, I mean, they're found in, I mean, there was a couple of studies which showed that they found traces of these chemicals in every single person. Mm. So like every single person they tested, a lot of it's stored in our fat. It means it's lipophilic, which means that when we take it into our body, can't process it there and then we're going to store it into our fat tissue and there's actually lots of kind of evidence to suggest that okay this is maybe contributing to things like chronic obesity which can't be resolved by things like diet but then uh, aside like erica just said about the pollinating insects there's also the microbes in the soil so the composition of microbes which kind of um, make up the soil, the soil-based organisms, uh, they're really responsible for allowing a plant to um, grow as it should do, but also to provide the nutrients that it should do. So a plant that is growing in soil, which is kind of bereft of certain microorganisms and is being disrupted by these kinds of chemicals and stuff over a long period of time, um, what they're finding now is that actually the, the food that's growing in the soil now is actually less nutritious. Mm -hmm. So when you compare something like an organic carrot to uh, a non-organic carrot, which is being grown on like a, a, 
conventional or kind of industrial farming plot, um, you're going to find a significantly different nutrient composition. And they're finding this with lots of different vegetables, grains, that kind of stuff. And, and essentially the point is, is that when, when, um, when these kind of, you go through several generations of these vegetables on this industrial farming, uh, kind of setup, then you, you're basically depleting those vegetables of nutrients. Um, and so when you compare it, it's like, uh, the organic comes on on top, so it's lessing, it's lower in in toxic chemicals, but it's also completely different in terms of what food uh, or what nutrition it can provide the human body, which is I th- think is fascinating. Yeah, yeah I mean, just uh, some statistics on that. Uh, some research was done on soil, at least here in the United States, and they were talking about how there's a forty 41- one percent to a hundred percent decrease in vitamin a in six different foods apples bananas broccoli onion potato and tomato and then it goes on to say both onions and potatoes saw a hundred percent loss of vitamin a between the years 1951 and 1999 so that's not even in the year 2000 and having worked in farming for the last 20 years, uh, I've never worked on an industrial farm, but I have seen many industrial farms and I have seen the degradation that happens. And I'll just use from my experience, um, I lived in Hawaii for many years and Hawaii was a very heavy chemical intensive farming of pineapple and sugarcane. And when those industries were moved to other countries because of the cost of labor and whatnot, um, those soils were never treated. And basically it was leased to farmers who would come and try and start sustainable or organic farms. Well, some of the soil was so toxic uh, with things like arsenic and uh, mercury that you couldn't plant things like lettuce or broccoli or foods that you could eat. You could only plant trees that would process, that would be edible later because the filtration system of the tree. So my point being in all that is this is not something you can reverse in a year or two years. And what Elliot was saying is it's completely destroyed essentially the microbiome of the soil. So there's no nutrition left in the soil to feed the plant. It's completely toxic more than anything. And there are methods that we'll get into later in the show about how to regenerate the soil it does take a lot of physical labor. It's not something that can be done by quote unquote innovation, which is a word that I see a lot now in this whole greenwashing of agriculture. Innovation is not gonna save the soil. We need to find our way back to ways like tilling and animal husbandry that actually bring natural, and I hate to use the word organic, but organic elements back into the soil because that the, it's like what 6% of the earth's crust is topsoil. And if we don't have it, there's no way humans can survive. Yeah. I think that's a really good point actually um, that people don't really know necessarily, or <clears throat> excuse me, a lot of people don't really uh, seem to know just how important topsoil really is. You know, that is kind of like the fundamental component that all our food relies on you know um if you don't have topsoil you can't grow anything and if you can't grow anything it's like not only can you not grow any vegetables for yourself or any plants at all but animals can't eat anything either so it's like fundamental to the entire food chain is topsoil and there are ways of farming that regenerate topsoil and actually that's a very good thing Um, Industrial agriculture is not the least bit concerned with um, regenerating topsoil because they're just basically dumping chemicals on to try and replace what topsoil is essentially doing. So they are using chemical fertilizers, um, which do kind of a half-assed job of feeding the plants. Um, And because the plants aren't doing so well, then uh, weeds and uh, uh, pests can kind of take over. So then they use... um, pesticides and herbicides try and control for that and it's just this this whole 
system ends up being completely dependent on this technology that is completely against nature. It's basically like going in and trying to bend nature to their to their will um, by force. And in order to do that, it's such a toxic process that everything that's coming out of that, including the food, but also like, you know, the, the, just the um, pollutants that it's giving off, the, uh, the degradation of the environment, everything about it is completely toxic. And it's like, we've become completely reliant on this system that is like, it's cancer. It's like the entire planet has cancer because we have been uh, like taken up this completely backward and short-sighted um, method. Whereas like, you know, if you went back to like the, you know, the middle ages, actually you probably don't even have to go back that far. You go back like, you know, a few hundred years and it's like people had an understanding about this kind of thing. They knew how to farm. They knew how to, you know, they, their, their crops were probably much more drought resistant or flood resistant or whatever, just because they were, they were employing these natural methods. They were working with nature rather than completely working against it. Yeah, and I think that the, the United States has exported this idea of synthetic fertilizers. Uh, we won't get into the backstory of all that because the, uh, the synthetic fertilizer industry kind of came out of the war industry, the chemical, you know, high intensive chemical inputs. But um, the more that, you know, farmers use synthetic fertilizers, the more in increasing amounts they need to use each year. And that benefits companies selling these products. I mean, it's a, it's a business model set up for profit at the cost of everyone else's health. Um, you know, one of the things you were saying about cancer, you know, not only in US, the U.S. and Europe, but in um, Argentina, you know, the spiraling rates of cancer because of uh, glyphosate for uh, production of what, soy? I think Argentina is doing soy, a lot of soy. But also in India, where this green revolution was introduced, you know, they have a cancer epicenter and Indian soils are being depleted at a, at a, as a result of this application and um, it's losing 5,000 million tons of soil every year due to soil erosion and um, water contamination and it's just insidious. You know, the Indian Council of Agriculture Research that uh, reports that soil is becoming so deficient in nutrients and fertility that small holders um, are being driven from their land. They cannot produce food on these lands anymore because they're so toxic. And that's not even going into the effect of the water because every crop needs water to grow. And these things are all going into waterways. And so it's just this endless cycle. And um, the solutions that Big Ag is offering is even worse. Yeah. Seems kind of ironic that it's referred to as the Green Revolution. You know, <laughs> it's kind of like, <clears throat> yeah, it, it's, it's just like it's probably the first instance of greenwashing. Yes, exactly. And the man that kind of came up with it, his name is Norman Borlaug. He won a Nobel Peace Prize for the Green Revolution. And he, uh, he set out what he called his wheat apostles to spread 12 different scientists to spread this Green Revolution around the world. And, you know, there's, again, Dr. Vandana Shiva has been just trying to get information out to people about what this has done to an entire country as far as being able to provide food for their own communities, their own areas, and eliminating um, breeds of seeds that have been farmed for thousands of years that have supported people. So this idea of creating this monoculture, con complete control of all food. Yeah. Uh, we have another video, Damien, if you want to play it. Um, I kind of dubbed this clip the poison cartel, and you'll see why. Okay, give me one sec here.
that 1320, right? Yeah. Okay. Welcome back to On Contact. We continue our conversation about global food production with Dr. Vandana Shiva. So that figure, which I caught during the break, was 90% of crop varieties have disappeared. 90% crop varieties have been pushed to extinction by the poison cartel, which is engaged in ecocide. And not just crop varieties. Not just crop varieties, because on crops depend the pollinators. And when you're uh, plants that feed the monarch butterfly are killed, 90% of the monarch butterfly goes. When your neonicotides and your pesticides are sprayed and the Bt toxin in every leaf of the plant releases a poison, your bees disappear. We are in an extension crisis and it's this poison cartel This is responsible for it. Let's talk about the suicides before we get into the IT. Uh, uh, the journalist uh, is a PJ Senath. Yeah, so they were about to talk about all the Indians, farmers that have committed suicide as a result of the Green Revolution. We won't go into that in today's show, but basically it's, it's again, destroying an entire country and their way of life, but this Green Revolution. So it hasn't really provided anything but additional funding and profit for corporations yeah. and the control of the food death to everybody else yeah everything else so kind of moving on it's interesting to think about what the alternatives are and so now uh, in, in just the last couple of years we've been presented with alternatives that um, people are thinking is a good thing one of those is uh the impossible burger. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's funny because basically the, the, you know, all this environmental destruction basically by this, this cam, you know, the chemical agriculture, um, it's causing all these problems and it's, it's just absolutely terrible. And it seems like they just greenwash, um, and bring in a solution to that. Um, I mean, it's kind of detached a little bit because it's basically like there's this, all these kind of fake meat things coming out. Like they, they're blaming essentially meat farming for causing all this environmental, all these environmental problems. And granted, you know, uh, factory farming of meat, it does have an environmental impact. Um, but, you know, pasture raising meat obviously does not, you know, pasture raising meat actually will build soil. Um, but then the, the, the solution they present is like, well, the, then we all have to switch to fake meat. And <clears throat> that's, you know, just more of the same. It's like more, it requires all monocropping. It's like that impossible burger is genetically modified. They're using genetically modified yeast to pr pr uh, produce a, a protein that usually is only found in the root of uh, soy uh, plants, so it's not even something that humans eat generally, and they're they're putting that into their burger to make it more like blood, um, and it's basically like just they're they're calling for more of the same. It's like oh, you know, we're having this environmental catastrophe, so let's ramp up what we've been doing and all switch over to this complete monocropping nightmare. Um, make sure we get rid of all the people who are actually eating meat that might actually be contributing to uh, solving the problem. And we'll switch everybody to this. And yet the, the worst thing is that people are buying it. People are actually kind of like, oh, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help the environment by eating, you know, having uh, vegan Mondays, you know, meat-free Mondays or meatless Mondays, whatever they're called. Yeah, it kind of, kind of baffles me how we ever got to this point, really, because um, just looking at the back, yeah, looking at the ingredients list, Yeah. Um, I mean – how many ingredients are there there? I mean, there's quite a lot, right? And you're going to be shipping those from different places in the world. So in contrast to a cow, which you could grow in your, you know, which could roam around in your garden and which you literally just have to kind of bolt in the head and then cut up 
into some pieces. I know that isn't how most people have their meat now, but I mean, technically speaking, you, you could realistically do that. Um, and then compare that with all of the air miles, you know, the thousands of miles and then the petroleum and everything, all of the resources that are used to produce. And, and this isn't even, isn't even factoring in the lab costs, the electricity, the incubation, all of the technological costs involved in kind of producing this artificial synthetic manufactured burger. Um, merely from an energy standpoint, it's like you think about how much this process is contributing to the overall kind of environmental pollution along with, as Doug said, it's GMO, it's, you know, monocrop, it's all of those other kinds of things. It's like, how on earth could anyone with a working brain look at the ingredients, look at the process of how this thing is made, and then honestly, honestly go along with the idea that this is somehow better for the environment? Yeah. Uh, or better for you. Well, so, yeah, so much of it is kind of shoved down our throat now, like a couple months ago we did that show about uh human extinction as far as what you know if you stop flying and you stop driving and you stop eating meat that you'll save your oh stop having children and we'll say it will save the planet yeah and so you see this message especially in social media they don't address the industrial ag model they don't mm. address the synthetic fertilizers or chemicals or any of those things. What they do is they shift the, the kind of the focus and their key corporate message is there's no alternative. There's no alternative to this. So we're just going to start creating things in a lab that make you feel good that you're being a vegetarian or a vegan and you're doing the right thing, but don't look behind the curtain just as Elliot was saying about what actually is in these things and the amount of energy that it takes to produce just one of these. And I find it ironic. They call it the impossible burger because it's really yeah. impossible that, that the, <laughs> that this is out there and that it's um, so popular. I mean, yeah. I got to look through my notes here, but I mean, they're, they're selling, people are buying them. I think 22,000 restaurants in the United States have the impossible burger on the menu now. Yeah. And so if you're not informed about where your food's coming from in other than just a very kind of surface level, you're going to be like, Oh, I'm doing the right thing. Look at this impossible burger. They're so great. They're so environmentally friendly. It's unbelievable. It's kind of like, <clears throat> there's a certain kind of like technological determinism involved in the whole thing. It's kind of like we keep on looking to technological solutions. Um, mm -hmm. And it seems like, I mean, this is essentially space food, right? Like this is what everybody was told in the 50s that we were going to be eating in the future, right? Like it was like just this, you know, all the nutrients would be taken out of what we need. And, you know, you could eat a pill and that would be all you'd need for, for the entire day or something. I mean, we're getting there, right? This, this is kind of like on that road. It's, it's the idea that you can just take all these constituent parts from all these different places, these synthesized vitamins and things like that, and roll them into to one artificial food, and that that's good enough. You know, that's not even good enough, it's better. That's actually better than, than the real thing. Instead of kind of saying, you know what, like nature actually had this right, um, maybe we should go back to what, um, you know, to, to nature for a solution, instead of, instead of, this hubris that like this human hubris this this idea that we we know better it just it's it's unbelievable i it's only leading to well our destruction essentially most definitely i mean back to the impossible burger you know back in 2015 the fda uh raised questions about uh the genetically modified engineered heme in the burger and you know this is the fda sometimes called the, you know, Fuel Death Association, or there's a lot of <laughs> other acronyms that, you know, can come along with that organization, but they did raise these questions. And uh, despite their concerns, um, you know, they got the grass 
uh, it's called GRAS, uh, generally recognized as safe stamp of approval. And it went ahead and they put the burger on the market uh, starting in 2016. And so, um, you know, all that the Impossible Food Company submitted as far as rat testing was, was uh, minimal, you know, a couple week study. And uh, the agency said it didn't have any more questions about its safety. Well, the crazy thing is that originally they said no. Originally, the Food and Drug Administration didn't, didn't allow it. Um, <clears throat> and there was a study done where they fed rats the um, soy leg hemoglobin, I guess is how it's pronounced, or lead hemoglobin, um, which is basically that thing I was talking about before, which is like a protein that's found in the root of soy plants um, that has... It's, it's similar to hemoglobin, so it's similar to like heme iron, um, which kind of is part of what gives meat its kind of characteristic taste and juiciness and whatnot. But they fed rats this stuff, and they actually found that um, the rats had unexplained weight gain, uh, changes in the blood that can indicate the onset of inflammation or kidney disease, as well as possible signs of anemia. Now, the FDA rejected it, and then they basically just redid the study where they didn't find those things. And then they said, okay, that's fine, good. They didn't change anything. They still, I mean, they changed the study, obviously. <laughs> I wonder if it would just had to do with, like, they didn't grease the right palms in the, uh, the, on their first try. And then the second try, they did. They figured it out. They're like, oh, I see. You wanted money. That's what it was. Here you go. And they're like, okay, everything looks to be in order here. We have no more questions. Well, and it seems like this approach is, again, as I was saying earlier in the show, uh, promotion of fake foods to give GMOs a new face, mm. especially as we see, you know, all these Monsanto settlements coming out about glyphosate and, you know, all of a sudden it has to be rebranded as something that can save the planet now, you know, forget about the side effects of the ingredients, you got to save the planet first, you know, you can't be selfish and worry about your own health. And, um, you know, the industry, this whole plant based food company industry, you know, it was, there was no money being put into it. 2009 it was not a thing, but by 2018 last year, it was over $600 million of investment. So these companies are you know, again, back to this idea of a business model, like instead of addressing the issues that we have with this obviously broken monocropping system, let's just put more money into something that's seriously questionable. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, these companies, I'm, I, I'm not really surprised, you know, um, you can go from you know, kind of the more conspiracy, conspiratorial angle on the whole thing. But honestly, it just seems like um, the, these companies are kind of just seeing the writing on the wall and they know that, or they're even dictating to a certain extent, a certain extent that there's going to be more of a demand for these meat substitute foods um, because we're being basically brainwashed every second of the day that um, meat is destroying the environment. And if you eat meat, you're selfish um, therefore, this alternative is is offered. Um, but yeah, I don't blame these kind of like Silicon Valley types and stuff like that who are going into these businesses. Um, you know, for the one th one thing, it's it's like it, the the profit that they're going to make, they're projecting anyway, is going to be huge because you know the 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 brainwashing is working. You know, people people are switching over to these fake meats and things like that. Um, it's like you were saying, Erica, the, this thing is possible or possible, popular. <laughs> the impossible burger is popular. It's impossible. It's, impossible. <laughs> it's not possible. It's impossible. <laughs> yeah. If, if you were, a, if you were an investor, then um, yeah, I mean, it would be a great time to get into business because the, the popularity is really spiked just in the past sort of, three or four years it seems mm -hmm. um and there are many 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 different vegans who are quite willing actually to sacrifice their own health in favor of um this idea that they are somehow contributing to the 
um, betterment of humanity with regard to sustainability and um, protection of the environment and kind of doing <laughs> kind of doing a service um, for the rest of humanity um, and for these kinds of people, no matter how many research studies or kind of facts about nutrition and health, it doesn't really matter because actually they've, they've gone past caring about health. It's, it's actually more to do with like, they're happy to sacrifice that. Um, and, and, and I think there's more people like that. And then there's the whole other branch of vegans who are genuinely, um, who genuinely believe that veganism is the most healthy diet for human beings. Um, and therefore, um, they jump onto the bandwagon as well. But ultimately it just seems like humans, there's a a large chunk of humans in in the West, at least who are are ripe for this kind of, uh, programming and they are jumping on board, um, by, you know, by the day, more by the day. Yeah. Yeah, there was one uh, study that I was reading uh, that suggested by 2025, 60% of meat consumed will come from lab-grown p- products or plant-based alternatives. That's it. I'll be the rest of that 40%. <laughs> yeah, interestingly, like um, there's actually I've spoken to quite a co- quite a few meat eaters as well who aren't even you know that you wouldn't class them they're not vegan they eat meat but they would they would prefer to eat lab-grown meat mm-hmm. because there is this belief that it somehow uh causes less suffering and is better for the environment and it's the best thing to do and so it's like i think there are like a good chunk of people who are gonna welcome this who are really you know willing to to give up proper meat and start eating lab grown meat. Yeah. The lab grown thing is, is creepy. I think, I mean, you know, aside from just being creepy, I, you know, like we were talking about the, the, the fake meat and the impossible burger. It's like how much energy is actually going into producing that? How much actually has to like, I mean, doesn't that thing cost like $8,000 for a burger at this point? So obviously there's a lot going into it. Like it's not, um, just I don't know the idea that that you know going through this entire lab process and such an in- energy intensive process and so much that has to go on there as opposed to throwing a cow on some grass and waiting yeah. it's like it it just, how can anybody think that this is a good solution yeah and from a you know farming standpoint these lab made meat substitutes aren't going to regenerate the environment. They're not going to clean up the soil or the water. They're not, it's not a real solution to continue to inhabit the planet the way that we do. It's again, just as Elliot said, energy intensive. And it would be interesting to find a study that actually showed how much it costs just on the energy level to produce something like this. And I'm sure it's been done, you know, because there's, there's such a back and forth about it, that it it sometimes is overwhelming to to just try and follow it all. And so, as you were both saying, sometimes I guess it's easier to just eat the impossible burger and go on with your day. (laughs) Nope. It's not easier. I can, I can honestly say that I will never (laughs) like, <laughs> I won't even smell it. <laughs> Impossible. Impossible. Well, and it's also, you know, it affects every single person on the planet because, you know, for most people, they eat two to three times a day. And so this is something that affects everyone, not just, you know, people in America or people in Europe, but it's global. So, um, we had an article that I thought maybe you'd like to address, Doug, because uh, it's like, what is the alternative to this, what we called in a previous show, the vegan push, right? This mm-hmm. uh, kind of agenda. And the article was, if you care about the planet, eat more beef. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's basically, the idea is essentially that um, 
all this monocrop farming, um, industrial agriculture, chemical farming is just poison um, for the land. It's essentially just destroying the land. But meat farming, which gets, you know, whatever they, they talk about meat farming and they say, oh, meat farming is terrible for the environment. We should all farm vegetables instead and everybody has to eat less meat to save the environment. They're only talking about factory farming, essentially. They're not talking about, um, you know, pasture-raised beef or lamb or whatever the case may be, pigs. Um, because when you're pasture-raising animals, you're actually, it, that does regenerate um, the soil. That actually will build up the land rather than strip away from it. You know, you, you picture like monocropping, basically you're, you're kind of, you grow your plants and then you scoop them up and take them away. So when you grow these plants, they require all the minerals and nutrients from the soil and then you're shipping them away. And you keep doing that and you ship it away and you keep doing it and ship it away. It's like that's stripping all of that stuff out of the soil. And then you have to artificially put it back in with fertilizers and everything like that. Whereas if you have um, a properly managed pastured um, meat agriculture, it's a cycle. Everything gets, you know, the, 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 the cow eats up the grass, has a, <clears throat> gets all the minerals and everything that it needs, and then it's pooping it out, and that's going back into the, the, the ground to be recycled, reused again. Um, so it's, it's just when they talk about meat farming and they say, oh, meat farming is terrible for the planet, it's not. Um, if it's done properly, it isn't bad at all. It's actually really good. You know, when they start talking about how we have to eliminate all these cattle because they're farting and it's destroying the atmosphere, it, that doesn't make any sense. You know, there used to be how many millions of buffalo in North America? I mean, those guys don't exist anymore. So how can we have, the, you know, that the equivalent or less amount of cows and suddenly they're bad for the environment? You know, there wasn't any global warming back in, you know, 1200s or earlier. It just doesn't make any sense. Well, and it's interesting how you're talking about the the methane, the cow farts, because we've kind of joked about this on previous shows. But um, the lunatic farmer's name is Joe Salatin, and he has uh, polyface farms where they do exactly what Doug is talking about. And we'll get into this idea a little bit more in a minute. But he's he was talking about methane, and uh, he says whether methane is emitted by fermentation in the same is the same whether it occurs inside the cow or not and right. uh, whether the feed is eaten by an omnivore or herbivore or left to rot on its own the methane generated is identical he said wetlands emit some 95 percent of all methane in the world herbivores are insignificant enough to not even merit consideration so anyone who really wants to stop methane needs to start draining wetlands quick or we'll all perish. You know what I mean? So it makes a really good point. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the whole the whole carbon thing is a complete red herring anyway. I mean, the amount that carbon actually contributes to the climate is so insignificant. You know, the, the climate is controlled by our sun. I'm sorry to say that's that's what's going on there. Um, and th this whole palaver that's put up about carbon, I mean, it's such, it's so insidious and like everybody is convinced now they, that they're, they're just drawn into this ridiculously simplistic explanation for things. And so that, that lets everything else kind of get away. They get away with so much else, you know, like, like pollution is bad. It's really bad for sure, but it's not because of carbon or very little is because of carbon. There's so much other crap being put out into the environment that's actually way, way, way worse. But no one, no one pays attention to that anymore. All it is is carbon. Anybody talks about is carbon. That's it, just carbon. And it's, it's exactly. so disheartening because it's just, they've really effectively just turned everybody's head, just go, and nobody, nobody can see anything anymore. It's just all it is is carbon. Yeah, they, they, with the methane thing, it's like they, they've got the narrative and then they'll pick any piece of information that they can just to fit it in with that. Um, it's like they don't care about the facts. They have their theory and then they wait for the facts afterwards or they cherry pick ideas 
um, ideas and they bank on the fact that the public, the large majority of the public are greatly uneducated in, you know, on the topic of how much methane might actually be contributing to the environment. We just trust what the authorities say. Um, but then when kind of specialists or really educated people come along and say, well, actually, this might not be technically true. They are labeled as heretics. Yeah. Uh, climate, climate change deniers. deniers. <laughs> yeah. yeah, climate deniers. And, and these, these people are, are, are the equivalent of Nazis. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So, so um, it's understandable. But um, it's still a problem. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you've seen that whole thing happen in the whole GMO industry, too. And I've, I feel like I've been talking about this for 20 years and, you know, I'm preaching to the choir. But, you know, if you had questions back in early 2000 about the safety of genetically modified organisms in your food, you were anti-science. Yeah. You know, and and when I started looking into it, I wasn't even concerned about the, the labeling of food or anything. I was concerned about the contamination of the soil because once you get genetically modified microorganisms in your soil, you're never going to get rid of them. Mm -hmm. And you know, sometimes I felt like, uh, you know, Henny Penny, the sky is falling. I'm crazy. Maybe I'm wrong. And then 20 years later, all of a sudden, it's like, oh, yeah, it's basically like an antibiotic for the soil, and it's killing all biodiversity in the soil. Now we have this epidemic of, you know, stomach issues and, uh, you know, gastrointestinal cancers. And so it's kind of turned out to be true in a way, you know. I'm, is that anti-science? I don't know. That's questioning. It's like all the other things that are on the market, whether it's lead or you know, um, asbestos or mercury, you, you name it, Tef Teflon, you know, yeah. I mean, what it took 30 years, 40 years for DuPont to finally be sued for using Teflon and poisoning people. I don't know. Sometimes you do feel like, well, maybe I have lost the plot. I just need to move to a farm somewhere. <laughs> the whole anti-science argument is so ridiculous. You know, half the time the people who are critical of these things are, scientists or they're using mm -hmm. they're using science to build their argument they're kind of looking at the science and saying no this doesn't this isn't sound this doesn't make any sense and they get labeled anti-science it's just ridiculous mm -hmm. like i mean is anybody really anti-science at this point honestly i mean i'm sure there's like some you know mennonite luddite people out there still but like the vast majority of people are not going to be anti-science i mean that's just it's just such a ridiculous thing well, I think with the Mennonites and the Amish and these, these, you know, farming communities of people, they're like, forget your fancy techno yeah. crap. We're going to stick with what we know works. In that sense, and they're, they're definitely right. They're people. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah. Very good point. <laughs> Maybe we should all become anti-science. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm open to it, but, you know, and we don't have to go into all the corruption of science that happens in just this one small, you know, side kind of industrial ag model. But mm. you're beholden to big money and, you know, um, your university is funded by biotech. I won't even say, you know, all the different numbers, but biotech funds your university and they teach the ag program that's teaching all these young people how to farm and they're not learning about regenerative agriculture or, you know, low uh, intensive spraying or any of that, then, then they don't have a model to work on. And, right. Right. And the thing and is the they need a job. <laughs> well, yeah. And the thing is that the, that, that regenerative agriculture is science. Like that is that those are people who are really studying this stuff and learning from it and observing and making adjustments. And like, it's not, it's not a, a method that's completely, you know, done now. It's like, okay, we know how to do this. It's like, it's continually um, being innovated upon and the science is being looked at. So yeah, the, the idea that, um, that it's somehow anti-science to actually work with nature it's just, it's absurd. Yeah, and I, I think, you know, as with every show that we have, we try and 
offer some sort of possibility for solutions or, you know, mm. how, how can we remedy, uh, you know, this whole situation? And I think this looking into regenerative and what they're calling agroecology. So coming back to these systems that people have been using for thousands of years to produce safe and local food is yeah. a very real possibility. But boy, do you see on the internet some strong hate campaigns against it. I mean... Yeah. Some of it coming from the Impossible Burger, actually. Mm -hmm. They just said... What, what was it they said? They said some, some kind of catchy line like, um, it's the clean coal of the farming mm -hmm. world or something like that. Yeah. So basically saying that, the, that it's just putting kind of a... Uh, kind of, well, greenwashing, essentially. They're saying that uh, regenerative agriculture, basically it's a myth and it's no better than, than regular agriculture. Um, they're actually a really evil company, actually, when, when you really look at it. Like, you know, the, the moms, what were they called? Moms Across America or something like that, who did a, a test of their burger and found out it had... Uh, like 13 parts per billion of glyphosate in it or something like that. And then they turned around and said, well, you know, they smeared them essentially um, mm -hmm. and, and more or less doubled down and said, well, glyphosate's not a bad thing. It's like, oh, okay. Wow. I mean, the hubris <laughs> of that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. Yeah. The name of that article, if anyone's interested in, reading it it came out in june from this uh website called grist and uh they do a lot about animal farming and covered gmos for several years but it's called impossible foods and regenerative gravers face off in carbon farming dust up and we won't go over the carbon thing again but you know these guys just go on the attack yeah yeah and, you know, it's not surprising, really. They're following kind of the Monsanto model of things, where mm -hmm. it's kind of like anything that threatens to get in the way of you and your profits, you do anything, no matter how dirty, to um, eliminate them. Um, so, I mean, you know, looking in the, into the, the GMOs and stuff, uh, like if you see the attacks that happen to people like Jeffrey Smith or, you know, some of the other people, um, even to farmers themselves, um, they're just absolutely ruthless. So it's kind of like Impossible Foods is kind of like kind of following the same model in that sense. Anybody who speaks out against their thing is, well, they're anti-science or they're not real scientists or any number of other things. They just have the, they, they just go on the attack. Yeah. And I think initially it, it worked, you know, with Jeffrey Smith and Arnold Putzstai is another uh, yeah. guy that comes to mind that where they, they figure if they just discredit these scientists to the point where they ruin their career, they'll stop doing research on it. And I think just like you said, they're trying this again now, but they're going after this whole idea of regenerative farming and that, yeah. you know, they, it, it won't be able to realistically feed, you know, the population and, mm. you know, it's just not a, a, a model that you can scale up. But I mean, I think that's what needs to change as far as people's thought process about it is instead of having anything that you want at the grocery store, and I'm talking about America here, and I'm sure it's the same in Europe, you can go to, you know, I'll just use Walmart as an example, and you can buy anything pretty much fruits and vegetables uh, that are, are not grow. It's not the season for them to be produced, but you can buy anything. Mm -hmm. And so if, if you're expecting to have that kind of availability of food, then you're not going to support uh, something like regenerative agriculture because you may only be able to eat certain things at certain times of the year. Yeah. But you know what I mean? So it kind of, I feel like it kind of, um, speaks to this whole entitlement culture that we live in in the mm. United States. Like, you know, my dollars, if I want to buy a peach in the middle of winter, I should be able to do that. But people have to change their idea of what food accessibility really means. Yeah. And, you know, we see these in older times and back to like the Amish and, you know, these more kind of farm bound communities where you know you ate 
meat that you had canned or preserved during the winter months and maybe some root vegetables. And then during the summer, you had more access to things like berries and fresh vegetables. I mean, people are just spoiled. They want what they want. Pretty much. And the planet be damned as a result, you know? Well, now they want it all um, reformed into a plant-based burger. That's what they're looking for. They don't even want vegetables anymore. They wanted an impossible burger. It really makes me think of the movie Soylent Green. If if anyone hasn't watched it recently, it's kind of an interesting uh, take on all of this because I I just watched it recently and um, they kept referring to the year 2018 in that movie. And that kind of freaked Mm. me out because I was like, are we there? I mean, is, is the impossible burger, the new soil and green. It's just got a nicer name. you know. Well, there's even that protein dr- or nutritional drink thing that's called Soylent. Oh, which is a creepy, I- <laughs> creepy marketing on their part, I'd say. And so maybe just kind of t- tie everything in and, uh, give a little bit of background for people who may not know what regenerative agriculture is or uh, even agroecology. So, well, I'll start with agroecology because the name kind of explains it. It's basically like a grassroots rural change um, that's independent and not controlled by biotech or agribusiness companies. So any kind of small farm, I think, is practicing agroecology, you know, re- reducing, I'm not the, the unrealistic type that you can't use some sort of pesticides now and again. You don't have to be 100% certified organic, but I can say a small farm is going to produce a lot more high quality food than, you know, a corporate Monsanto, Bayer, Cargill, Syngenta backed monocrop for sure. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's, providing solutions for people who don't have a lot of financial input. They can start small. I mean, you know, people are growing 700 pounds of food on a quarter acre of land, you know, I mean, that, that there's real production that can happen that can feed local communities. And I think that's really the model that people are trying to try and emanate. Um, it also doesn't put the farmer in debt. So, you know, if in the U.S., like especially with soybean and, G- and GMO corn farmers, like they're, you know, mortgaged to the hilt. They have huge loans. And if the climate is erratic, which it is, they could lose everything and go bankrupt and lose their farm. Whereas these small little agroecology based farms if there's major loss, it's not going to destroy their entire business. They can kind of, you know, regroup. And so basically it's just an alternative. Mm-hmm. Um, with regenerative agriculture, it's more of farming principles and practices that increase soil biodiversity, uh, um, improves watersheds, wetlands, um, and enhances ecosystems. So instead of cutting down trees to plant massive amounts of crops, you know, you work with the environment that you have. And um, it also, with uh, regenerative agriculture, it can increase yields. Uh, It's resilient to climate instability and, there's better health and vitality in the food. So if people are composting and feeding their soil, um, not chemical-based fertilizers, but things like animal poop and, you know, bat guano and kelp, then you have high, higher quality nutrients in the food, going back to what we talked about earlier. And um, it's not new. I mean, no. it's... That's why I think the green revolution was so destructive to a place like India, because you had all of this wealth of knowledge that had sustained people for thousands of years. And you bring in this industrial model and you eliminate that knowledge. You basically steal that knowledge. And that's why 
Dr. Vandana Shiva calls it viral piracy. Like they're just co-opting all of these things away from people and giving them bullshit in return. Yeah. And shit food, you know? Yeah. And I know we have a, a video too. Maybe mm-hmm. we could play our little video about this regenerative agriculture and I mean, it seems pretty self-explanatory, even in the name. Yeah, but it's a good clip. Plenty of feed, all in the middle of a drought. David Marsh's farm on the southwest slopes of New South Wales is looking green now, but it hasn't always been this way. In 1982, we didn't know how much grass we had. We reduced our numbers far too late, like so many, and we turned this place into a desert. So what's helped transform the landscape from this to this? David Marsh says it's regenerative farming, a term still foreign to many primary producers, but one that's gaining fresh interest. My definition, and I think a general definition of regenerative agriculture, is any uh, practice or even philosophy which actually builds soil carbon. Charlie Arnott is another passionate advocate of this relatively new approach to farming. He stopped using chemicals and started making his own liquid compost. We used to go and buy bags of fertiliser. We used to buy pesticide, herbicide. We spent a lot of our time killing things to grow things, which is crazy. It's also about giving the grass a chance to recover. Cell grazing is a technique where cattle are kept in smaller paddocks. So they're moving on to new feed every 24 hours, so we can see a long way ahead. There's, you know, there's 150 days of grass ahead of our stock now in a time that's actually been a very dry 18 months. And it's allowed native vegetation, including grasses, to come back. The roots actually hanging onto the soil. In a drought, it's unusual to see soil looking this healthy. But the smell is really important. It should smell like your grandmother's um, old garden, veggie garden. Farmers are not rushing to take up regenerative methods, mainly because of the setup costs. But a long-term study of 16 farmers found that they are generally making more money, especially when it's dry. Younger farmers are sitting up and taking notice. I think there's probably more to learn from our landscapes, just, just letting them or giving them the chance to express themselves a bit more. If we could manage so that we kept water on our farms, our soil structure was improving, the life in our soils was improving, our animals were healthy, that would be a huge thing for this country. Greener pastures defying the drought. David Clawton, ABC News, Boroa. Very encouraging. Very encouraging. Yeah. And as I said earlier, uh, Joel Salatin, he's from Polyface Farms, which is in the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia. He's written many books and has lectures across the United States and writes, you know, articles. They call him the lunatic farmer. Um, a great article, uh, The Rise of Rogue Food, and you can watch an hour-long interview with him. Same kind of idea, that that yeah. using the animals to support rebuilding the soils and um, what does he call it, Neanderthal farming, farming. Like, you don't need, you know, all this technology. And um, he really doesn't want deep-pocket corporations controlling production and distribution so this is kind of his his uh revolt against industrial ag yeah i've seen him speak he's very great he's a great speaker yeah he was a really um i think i mean he's one of the pioneers of of kind of this resurgence of of these kinds of methods and his has some pretty ingenious ideas too, and he's been really big on um, promoting um, this style and kind of exporting this to other farms, um, kind of teaching other farmers how to how to do this. So mm-hmm. he's been he's been pretty instrumental in the whole movement. Yeah, and he's gotten attacked too. So <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, yeah. Uh, he has a great book if anyone's interested it's called uh, I have it right here everything I want to do is illegal (laughs) 
fucking title. <laughs> <laughs> and just about how, you know, they can't slaughter their own animals on their farm because of, you know, FDA or USDA regulations and whatnot. And he, he writes in a very entertaining style, mm. you know, because this is like, this is insane. We've completely lost our mind. <laughs> Pretty much. Well, I think that's pretty much it. I mean, I know there's a lot more out there. Uh, anyone's interested. We have done shows in the past. There are articles on SOT.net about the uh, evils of industrial agriculture. But uh, thank you for joining us. Please like and subscribe to our Objective Health YouTube page. And... Um, we will be ne back next week with another interesting topic. Bye, everybody. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye.